Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Uh, you know, chit chat. Get the chit chat? <laughs> All right. Yeah, so no, but I'm saying that, uh, so you're still in San Diego practicing cardiology, is that correct? Right, yeah, so I've got a part-time uh, general cardiology practice and then part-time doing the health coaching um, and working with diet doctor. Yeah, I was wondering, how, yeah, I was wondering how you transitioned. I think that's awesome. I bet you really, I bet you enjoy the diet doctor stuff. Well, I don't know, maybe not. I mean, that's No, what... I love those guys. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the website and the company and the people are amazing, and I really like the the writing and you know, it's all about getting information out there, right? Because, you know, I mean, yeah. we've been led astray with the information. So we, we need a place we can turn to get reliable, you know, dependable and what's really evidence-based um, information. And with the, with the strength of the recommendation matching the strength of the evidence. And that's really what Diet Doctor is. I mean, they want to get that information out there to help people live low carb in an easy way. But be upfront and be very transparent about what does the evidence say and, and how much can we rely on it? And there's, I don't know if we get led astray so easily. Um, by yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to pick that because you know, you said evidence-based and you put quotation marks yeah. it. and you know, and I, and I, you know, I, you know, it was all, it was maybe 10 years ago, we, you know, medicine in general really wanted to practice evidence-based medicine. Right. And so we, we, you know, we, we look to the literature, we look to our journals and, and this is where the evidence comes from. But, when we when we critically look at some of this stuff, we have to say maybe that evidence isn't necessarily done in the best way. And so, right, you know, we have to say what is evidence? You know, what is what is good evidence? What is bad evidence? And there's there seems to be a lot of bad evidence out there. And well, that's and, you know, just it. They say evidence based, but you never really talk about the quality of the evidence, as if all evidence is the same. All scientific studies are the same. So if there's any evidence in favor of something, therefore it's evidence-based. But as you and I know, I mean, that is just far, far, far from the truth. And the quality really matters. And that's what's been left out of the discussion. Whether it's a nutritional epidemiology study or whether it's a randomized controlled trial, but only in a small subset of people, right? Either one of those needs to be interpreted in context. The randomized controlled trial being the quote-unquote gold standard. But if it's in a very specific defined subset of people, then you still have to ask, okay, does that then apply to the general population? So, you know, there's a problem on the high end and then on the bottom end, nutritional epidemiology studies we know are, you know, you're better off flipping a coin to find out if the, if most of the findings are real or not. So definitely can't apply those to the general population. So it, it makes it hard, right? We like things simple. We like things quick and easy and just check the box and say it's evidence-based, let's do it. And um, our practice gets noted for being evidence-based. But it, that doesn't help anybody. That type of evidence-based approach, it doesn't help a single person. It just confuses people and leads them down the wrong road, I think. Yeah, I think, I think and, I, and I've been beating this drum forever, saying that, you know, any, any kind of association that's out there, you know, whether it's epidemiologically or even, even a, something you notice on a, on a controlled trial, you have to ask, who is that population you're studying? And, and, and is that you? 
because right. you may be doing something completely different. And diet is a very easy one to pick on. You know, low, low carb diet, ketogenic diet, carnivorous diet does not necessarily equal a high carb standard American diet or vegetarian diet. There's just different things going on. And until people get that out of their head <laughs> that we're not all generic standard humans eating the same food, you know, animal studies are nice in that the fact that you can control all of those variables, there's, you know, that's why I hear guys like Dom Dagasina said, I almost like animal studies better just because I can control things. With humans, we know we can't do that. Right. So it becomes very, very confusing. Let me, um, it's kind of funny. We've got two cardiologists coming on today. You know, you know, we got, we got Nadir Ali coming on after oh, you. Great. Cardiology oh, great. special day. So I want to make sure we don't just overlap too much. But I do know that um, one of the things that cardiologists are known for is dealing with atherosclerosis and we always hear that cholesterol is the main, well, we're told that cholesterol drives uh, cardiovascular disease, end of discussion, end of score, the science is settled, you know, so on and so forth. You don't necessarily believe that in all cases. Again, this comes to different popular, well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but walk me through your, your understanding of, of the importance and the role of cholesterol and, and how it impacts cardiovascular disease and how, what do you do with your patients? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And there's so much information out there. And, and the mainstream cardiology community is pushing that LDL cholesterol is causative of heart disease. And I think there are so many nuances and, and different, um, different details that are important. That's why I created this whole lipid course on my website to try and clarify some of this. But basically, LDL is certainly involved. LDL lipoproteins are involved in the atherogenic process. There's no question about that. But are they by themselves enough to cause atherogenesis and plaque buildup? And I think there the answer is no. I mean, it's a cascade. It involves vascular injury. It involves um, inflammatory response. You know, it involves macrophages, the, the um, immune cells that sort of respond to the injury. And it involves LDL, almost more commonly than not, the, the modified and the oxidized LDL getting gobbled up by the macrophages and turning into foam cells. So it's, it's this whole big cascade. And if we just focus on LDL alone, we're missing this entire picture out there. Now, if you look at the old evidence like Framingham and Mr. Fit and some of those trials, there is a clear association that as LDL cholesterol risk goes up, as LDL cholesterol goes up, risk goes up. But you have to ask yourself within what framework, right? Because that's the framework of the standard American diet. That's the framework of insulin resistance. That's in the framework of, of chronic inflammation. So in that setting, when you have all those other markers which contribute to vascular injury, then yes, having a higher LDL cholesterol is going to increase your risk of cardiovascular disease because there's a higher risk of those particles getting retained in the vascular wall when there's all that other injury going on. But the question that's not being answered is in someone who does not have high levels of inflammation, someone who does not have insulin resistance, someone not following the standard American diet, does the same association hold? And there the evidence really breaks down. We don't have the same level of evidence to say, yes, high LDL particle numbers equals cardiovascular disease in that setting. So that's where we need more nuance. We don't have the evidence to say it's not. And that's the other problem as well. We don't have long-term evidence to say it's completely harmless. But you know, people like to point out how many um, paradoxes have to exist before you question the paradigm, right? Whether it's the Katavin paradox where they have high ApoBs but almost no cardiovascular disease, whether it's the paradox of the study showing most people admitted for heart attacks have LDL cholesterols of like 130 and 100 and below who would be on target, yet they're showing up with heart attacks. 
you know, how many of these paradoxes need to exist before we start to question the, the primary role of the LDL cholesterol? Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, you know, a great point. And, I, and, I, and I, I don't think we can say that enough. Let me, you know, I was kind of funny. I was doing some CME the other day. And, and the t- it comes through my, you know, my mailbox. I'll, if it's something interesting, I'll, I'll do it. I saw one on lipids. Yeah, it was talking, you know, basically about these PCSK9 inhibitors, you know, about the super low in your cholesterol down to zero type of situation. And, you know, at the end of the, you know, the, the discussion, it was just basically, you know, it, it was, you know, funded by drug companies, as, as, as you might know, much of our CME has done, done that way. But the end, yeah. of the, the end of the day, it was how to get your, how to get your insurance companies to authorize you to use these drugs. But what is your thought? So let me, let me go into specific situations, because, you know, we talk about, you know, if we're on a different diet and we don't have inflammation, it may mean a different thing. But let's talk about specific situations because there's yeah. secondary prevention. You know, you've got a 45-year-old guy that's had an MI six months ago. How do you deal with that particular person relative to someone like me? I'm a 52-year-old guy, world breaking world records in rowing. I got no, uh, you know, clinical signs of cardiovascular disease, but my cholesterol is a little high. How do you treat yeah. those two different patients with regard to diet? Uh, lifestyle and then and then the role of, of statins and these other new inhibitors. What what are your yeah. thoughts regarding around that stuff? Yeah, that's a great point. And and the most important the most important answer is what is their overall cardiovascular risk? What are their overall cardiovascular risk factors? And that's the thing. So a 45 year old with an MI just should raise red flags all over the place that this person has some sort of process predisposing them to early vascular disease. And so that could be family history, it could be familial hypercholesterolemia, it could be uh, smoking or some chronic inflammatory condition or diabetes or insulin resistance, you know, uncontrolled high blood pressure. There are so many other risk factors that you have to address in that person. And you have to address every single one of them as aggressively as you can, because if you've had an MI at 45 and you want to live healthy into your eighties, you, your biggest risk is going to be cardiovascular disease. There's no question about it. So that's when I'm going to double down on everything in terms of treating the risk factors, which would usually include a statin, um, lowering LDL because that's part of the equation, but not by itself, right? You got to make sure the blood pressure is perfect. You have to make sure the insulin resistance is perfect. You have to make sure you're reducing inflammation. You have to make sure with their lifestyle that they're getting the right amount of exercise, that they're managing their stress, that they're sleeping right, and that they're eating a, a real foods diet. Now, what type of diet is going to vary for each individual, but Oh, almost always I'm recommending some version of a low carb diet. Does that mean they have to be in ketosis? Not necessarily. Um, some people are going to thrive in it and some people are going to do better with more of a moderate, moderate carbohydrate diet, um, depending on how their lipids respond, right? You don't want to put them on a diet that's going to lower their LDL, lower their HDL and raise their triglycerides because that's not going to help them in any way. So you have to find the right nutritional profile for them that's going to help them uh, improve all of their markers, keep their HDLs high, keep their triglycerides low, make sure their LDL is a large, more buoyant kind and not the small dense kind. Make sure you don't have lipid inflammation and make sure your blood pressure and your insulin resistance and your visceral adiposity and all those things are responding, right? So it's, we get too myopic on the one, the one risk factor of LDL. So that's how I'd approach the 45 year old. For someone like you, um, I wouldn't come near you with a drug because you're, you're thriving um, and you're not just you as specific, but sort of you as, as the subset of this low carb person who's thriving on a low carb diet, feels fantastic, is healthier than they probably have ever felt in their life, uh, but has one marker of concern with an elevated LDL. And there you have to put that into context. 
It's not that I would close my eyes and ignore it and say it's worthless because I think that question is not answered. So I think you have to monitor it and monitor all the specifics about the LDL characteristics and all your other cardiovascular risk factors and look at calcium scores and carotid intermedia thickness and look for any signs of vascular disease. And if we don't see any, then why would I want to mess with something that's making you feel great, enjoy your life and improve all your other health markers, right? I, I, I wouldn't do that. Let, let me, Zach, I'll let you get in here. Sorry, sorry, Zach. But let me ask you about these, you know, because we talk about being myopically focused on one, one biomarker. And, and, and as you, you know, very elegantly pointed out, there's a whole bunch of other ones out there. How do you sort of rack and stack those things? I know there's some people that say it's all about triglycerides and HDL. It's all about the coronary artery calcium skin. In your mind, where does the weight of the evidence lead you to believe if you could, if you could rank order these things you know, one to five, or is that too, is that too hard to do? I mean, can you, can yeah. you, yeah, I mean, I think that's just think? it. I don't, I don't want to rank order them because I don't want to diminish the role of any of them, right? So if blood pressure elevation is 140 over 80, maybe that's not your biggest risk factor. But if your blood pressure elevation is 180 over 110, all right, now all of a sudden that's going to be a bigger risk factor. If your LDL elevation is, you know, uh, 160. Um, and you have the large buoyant LDL versus 150 and you have all the small dense and inflamed, I'm going to worry more about the 150 and to put that higher on the list. Um, calcium score is important, but you have to take it for what it's worth, right? It's a time stamp now um, and then you something you can follow over time. Um, so they, they, everything plays their role. I don't know that I would rank them one above the other because I'm a big proponent of not relying on one test. A lot of the people who I get in my health coaching consults and my online consults, they come to me because their doctor was so focused on LDL and sort of not addressing everything else. And they want to know what, what else can I be doing besides just focusing on my LDL. So that's why I don't, I don't think we ever need to focus too much on one, just like I wouldn't focus only on the hemoglobin A1C and ignore everything else, right? It's all part of the, the whole picture. And um, that's where we get, we get lost when we focus too much on one thing. Let me ask you another question that's, that I, I, hopefully this doesn't make you too uncomfortable, but let me say, you know, you've got a person like me that's doing well, right? You know, I mean, or, or you know, arguably, I mean, or, or you could just be a generic guy, you know, he's 45, 50 years old. He's, he's doing great. He's lean. He's, his blood pressure is great. His triglycerides is low. His HDL is high. No markers of inflammation, no visceral body fat. At what level of LDL do you get concerned? If they come in there and their LDL is 300, are you going to say, whoa, 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 are you still going to let that guy ride? I mean, where, where do you draw that line or do you draw that line? Yeah, I, I don't draw that line. I mean, I don't draw that line because it, it all comes down to your personal beliefs, um, you know, your feeling about medications, your family history, um, what is going to be your biggest concern moving forward, and all the benefits you're getting from the lifestyle you're leading. And then I look for other markers, you know, other markers of vascular disease, whether it's the calcium score, the CIMT, and follow those over time. Now, if I were to see progression, then it almost doesn't matter. Then I want your LDL to come down. But if I don't see any evidence of progression, I don't, I don't have a strong indication that I would want your LDL to come down. And I do also want to make sure you don't have familial hypercholesterolemia. So, you know, make sure you don't have family history of high cholesterol or cardiovascular disease at a young age. Make sure you don't have the tendons anthomas and things like that that would predispose you because that's a different scenario. That's when your LDL receptors aren't working well 
and your LDL has a longer residence time so it can get oxidized and inflamed and cause more damage. That's a completely different scenario than the person who's low carb um, and has no genetic predisposition to, um, to their receptors not working. And therefore, I think their LDL physiology is going to be completely different. So I don't have an absolute cutoff point. Again, it's taking the number and putting it into the whole picture and the whole perspective and then coming up with an individual plan for the person. And, you know, a lot of times I do experiment with my clients um, that I work with health coaching to see what happens if you back off on the saturated fats and increase the monos. What happens if you go from 30 grams of carbs to 60 grams of carbs? Not just what happens with your lipids, but what happens with all your other markers and how you feel. And, and I find that some people will say, oh, I feel terrible. I mean, I, I notice the difference right away. I don't have as much energy. I'm out of ketosis. And they, okay, then let's get you back in ketosis. And some people don't notice the difference at all, and their LDL will come down uh, without affecting their HCL and triglycerides. And then that's a more comfortable lifestyle um, for them to be doing. But you know, it's, it's, it sounds cliche and, and I'm saying it over and over again, but it really is individualized because we don't have the data to back this up. And because everybody's on their own journey and in, in eating low carb or keto for different reasons and getting different responses, that's why you really have to tailor it to the individual without absolute cut points. Let's uh, just a little bit to dive a little deeper into FH and you know, familial hypercholesterolemia. Yeah. Now that, that is not just one disease. You know, there's obviously a whole bunch of different genetic Right. Uh, different, different, uh, you know, phenotypes. Some are homozygous, some are heterozygous, and so, you know, obviously there's there's evident there's reports of people with familial hypercholesterolemia that are homozygous, uh, which means both of their, you know, both of their genes are turned on for that, and they sometimes have dramatically high uh, levels of cholesterol, and then they often die or have cardiovascular disease at a young age, and then there's also people with FH that live their whole life with high cholesterol and yet they live as long or longer than anybody else. So how, talk yeah. a little bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah, so heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia I think is the main thing to focus on because homozygous is a completely different, uh, a completely different beast where, where people rarely live into their, into their 20s because they have basically zero functioning LDL receptors. So heterozygous where you basically have one of your alleles normal and one of your alleles abnormal. Um, and even then, there are a number of different generic var variations of it, so different degrees of LDL receptor function. Um, but what we find in those populations is, taken as a whole, they are at higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease at a young age. But those who don't develop cardiovascular disease at a young age actually might have a survival benefit. They might actually live longer, which shows this dichotomy of LDL. Right. So is it all because of other cardiovascular risk factors that you're going to be more sensitive to with a high LDL? Is it all about the specific genetic variation? But what we do know is it's not related to the degree of LDL elevation. And that's what's really interesting. It looks like the studies are pretty clear that it, when, you, um, when you break people down for like their quartile of how high their LDL is, whether they have cardiovascular disease at a young age or whether they don't isn't related to the absolute LDL level. So trying to figure out what it is related to is a very difficult question. And it might be coagulation um, because some of, the, some of the genetic mutations also affect the coagulation cascade and make you more likely to form clots. It might be just due to you know, smoking or insulin resistance or high blood pressure or other risk factors. Um, but it's clear it's sort of this dichotomy of some having a problem early and some not. 
And I wish there was an easy way to figure it out. Right now, there really isn't. There's some suggestion that if you have a calcium score of zero with FH, your five-year event rate is very low. But a five-year event rate in a 30-year-old or 25-year-old isn't all that reassuring, right? We want to know 40, 50-year event rate. We don't, we don't have that information. So it is an uncomfortable period. For, so for me to see somebody with FH, and I see a number of people with FH, it's, it's a little discon disconcerting um, because I don't know who's going to go on to get cardiovascular disease and who isn't. So I sort of have to treat everybody as if they are. But then the interesting question is, if you, they get into their 40s and 50s and they still have no evidence of cardiovascular disease, then I'd want to stop treating them because then I want them to get that survival potential survival benefit that they could get from, from the FH that the studies show. So it's a, it's a very confusing and fascinating field. Um, but of course, the, the standard practice in cardiology is everybody needs their LDL down to the floor if you have FH. And that sort of ignores the fact that a large percentage of people are going to do just fine and probably do better. But if we can't def def decide or define who's who, then we have to treat everybody as aggressively as possible as the general cardiology motto there. Zach, I'm going to let you jump in. I've got, an, I've got some other things I'd like to uh, cool. talk to Brett about, but I, and, you know, sorry for dominating the uh, question. <laughs> no, no worries at all. <clears throat> You've actually been kind of highlighting uh, through your responses, Brett, some of the things that I'm interested in asking you about. And, you know, one thing that has really caught my interest recently with the whole nutrition, uh, I guess, debate or discussion is this idea of like kind of the healthy user bias. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, one time I, I, I think more often than not, actually, when I'm seeing like a back and forth go on and people are rolling out studies and all these other things that are showing like why this diet is better than the other one. And, uh, so on and so forth, uh, is this kind of either willing, will, willful ignorance to include other variables outside of nutrition or just oblivious to the fact that there are other things that influence longevity and health and that thing outside of just yeah. what we're actually eating. And, uh, you know, I find that fascinating that like, you know, we have all these different pillars to health, which I think are actually maybe the only real value in these blue zone studies is that it kind of highlights the holistic area of it as opposed to just any one thing. Um, but then of course those go awry really quickly when you try to isolate any one of those variables and try to say, look, this is the, this is the answer right here. Uh, so I guess like my question with that is like, how do you kind of include that when you're working with someone? Cause my assumption is that most Americans are probably sub and right. most of those long efficient yeah patterns great question and things like and that. You bring up a lot of very good points there and I, I think in in order to really transform someone's health you have to hit all those pillars now nutrition is the one we talk the most about because it's the one we have the most complicated relationship with I think um, and the most intimate daily relationship with so nutrition almost always comes first but sleep social relationships exercise stress management are all a big part of that and influence how we interact with food as well. So the problem I run into with a lot of my clients who I consult with is, is giving them like, here are 10 things you need to do tomorrow to improve your health, right? I never want to do that because then people get overwhelmed. And that's actually why I created this six month course that I work with people over the course of six months. You know, I, I do like an email drip where they get a couple of emails a week to remind them of different things and educate them about different topics so that what you're doing is not just giving them this dump of things to do, but you're actually trying to 
uh, have them change their life, right? It's true behavior change. It's not try this for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. It's ingrained this in who you are so that you are now a person who prioritizes your health, who prioritizes your longevity, who prioritizes your health span. And you're going to do the things just naturally that are going to improve that. Right now, like, oh, I have to worry about my sleep for the next two weeks because Dr. Sure says I need to improve my sleep hygiene and then forget about it. No, it's about creating the whole lifestyle that you now do things in your life that are going to improve your sleep and it just becomes part of who you are. So um, I guess that's a long-winded way of agreeing with you completely that we need to address all these pillars, but the key is not to try and do too much at once because then you get mm -hmm. frustrated and you give up. And the key, another key is to set goals that you can accomplish. You set, set short-term goals on your way to your long-term goal. Because let's, let's face it, we all like reassurance, right? We all like positive feedback. So if you can get that positive feedback from short-term goals, but they're designed in a way to ultimately get you to that long-term goal, that's the best approach. And that's what I try and do in working with people with this six-month program. Not to just give them too much at once, but help them work out over time. And to say a couple of things about, um, you know, is it willful ignorance of people or just not understanding um, the intricacies of the study when they talk about it? I wish I knew the answer, but it still drives me crazy. And a lot of things I have to do is, is correct that information because people say, look, I, I, you need whole grains. Look at all these people living to 90 and 100 in the blue zones. They're eating whole grains. You need those. So no, you don't need those. It means they can be part of a healthy lifestyle if you're outside and physically active all day, if you eat you know, 1,400 calories a day, if all your food is local and fresh and you know, home prepared and not fast food and not junk food, and you're insulin sensitive, and you live in this community that, community that values health. If you have all those things like the blue zones, okay, then whole grains can be definitely part of a, of a healthy lifestyle. But try and take that data and extrapolate it to, to contemporary society, to industrialized society, to standard American society, and forget it. That breaks down. If you don't have all those pieces in place, you can't pick and choose certain parts and say, that is therefore healthy. That is not mm -hmm. science. And so we have to, you know, and like you guys are doing too with podcasts like this, we have to spread that message so people understand. Because when you have... I don't want to say the other side, but you have other people promoting it as such. It's just not true. And we need to break that down and help people understand the differences and the nuances. Well, and, and the interesting thing too, along those lines that I find that kind of actually highlights the nutrition side more so than some of those others is like, if you ask people, um, what do you think about exercise in terms of being good for you or bad for you? Otherwise, almost everyone's going to say good for you. Same with sleep, same with good social relationships, same with a lot of these other things. When it comes to nutrition, and then we look at the language we've used to kind of highlight what's good and bad over the past few decades, you have this weird situation where most of it is going to be demonizing meat, demonizing saturated fat. And that's where I think that healthy user bias really kind of takes an extra stab at the nutrition side of things just because, you know, someone who's just kind of paying attention to everything at a surface level, they're going to follow a, you know, a higher carbohydrate, high grain, you know, healthy whole grains, fruits and vegetables type of a nutrition approach. And then they're going to surely check off those other four that pretty much everyone agrees upon. And, you know, then we end up in this weird situation where the language actually really does influence the behaviors of people over the course of decades. Yeah. I mean, the, the latest egg uh, controversy is yeah. the perfect <laughs> example of healthy user bias, right? This, this study 
took one food frequency questionnaire over 17 years. They measured what they ate once, and a high percentage of these people were enrolled in the 80s and 90s. Well, what was the message in the 80s and 90s? That eggs are going to kill you. So who's going to be that one, the person who fills out that one food frequency questionnaire in the 80s and 90s and, eat, and is eating a lot of eggs? People who don't care about the health message, right? They're, they're just completely ignoring the health message. And, you know, it was a different, um, different society that, then than it is now, right? Now I think we have more educated people ignoring the guidelines and understanding the guidelines are bogus. But back then, I don't think there was this groundswell of people questioning the guidelines. It was just, if you didn't, if you didn't follow it and you didn't listen to what the experts were saying, you probably didn't care so much about your health. That is the perfect example of the healthy user bias. And yet now all of a sudden people are saying, oh, see, it's proven eggs are going to kill you. This is a great study. Well, there were 30,000 people and it was 17 years. And, you know, these sound pretty impressive. But when the data is just garbage, I mean, there's one food frequency questionnaire over 17 years and the healthy user bias thrown in there. I mean, it's worthless and it contributes nothing to a meaningful discussion on nutrition or eggs. Yet it's all over the media and confusing a ton of people. Yeah, kind of like the keto cross thing, but hey, Brett, let me, uh, you know, my because my background as an orthopedic guy, you know, blood clots were always, you know, the bane of our existence. You know, you do a knee replacement, break, fix a broken hip to a total hip, you know, you always worry about blood clots and you know, we learned yeah. about Virchow's triad of, you know, vascular damage and stasis and hypercoagulability states. I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with this guy. I suspect you might be a guy named Malcolm Kendrick. Who oh, of course. That, yeah. That much of atherosclerotic disease is actually a problem with you know, a clotting disorder or not a clotting disorder, but, but, but it's, it's, you know, clotting that is actually initiating this whole cascade. And what are your thoughts regarding that sort of theory of, you know, cardiovascular disease? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting when you talk about cardiovascular disease, we talk a lot about plaque development, evidence of plaque, but really what we want is we don't want heart attacks. We don't want blockages of the arteries. We don't want strokes, blockages of our carotids or intracranial arteries. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to avoid. Stable plaque doesn't hurt anybody. Now, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have any plaque. That's, that's job one. But I think what's an interesting question is if we do have some plaque buildup, but it's completely stable plaque, and we're not at risk of coagulation, we're not at risk of plaque rupture and forming, forming a thrombosis or a blood clot in your artery, then what does that plaque really mean? I think that's a very interesting sort of interplay in medicine that, that we still need to figure out, you know, the vulnerable plaque versus the stable plaque. But I think Malcolm Kendrick's point is, is well taken that the ultimate thing we're trying to avoid is the thrombosis, the blood clot, uh, the heart attack or the stroke. That's the endpoint we do want to avoid. So it plays a huge role, uh, no question about it. And so what are the things that can predispose to that? Well, again, we go back to chronic inflammation. We go back to, you know, underlying vascular injury and possibly insulin resistance contributes to that. Um, and, and a revved up clotting system, which certainly can happen from environmental exposures and unhealthy lifestyles. So absolutely. I think that plays a, a, an important role that we cannot ignore because it's the last step, the ultimate process that we need to avoid to prevent that heart attack. What do we do lifestyle-wise that can improve our coagulability profile, I suppose? I mean, I've seen that at least he, he makes this, the uh, uh, assumption or, or, or asserts that triglycerides are ather, or atherogen, or not atherogenic, they're, they're procoagulant, hmm. you know? And so 
What do you, what, how do you feel about triglycerides? Let me ask you about that. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, how so I, I have to be honest. I mean, I, I, I need to admit when I know and I don't know. I'm not aware of anything linking triglycerides to hypercoagulability. That's certainly something I, I would like to look into and learn more about. So I'm not aware of that. Um, but triglycerides in general are, are clearly an increase, increase your cardiovascular risk and tend to go along more with a high carbohydrate diet, tend to go along more with insulin resistance tend to go along more with the small, dense LDL. Um, so it's, you know, whether it's causal or a sign of the underlying lifestyle and the other problems, um, it's still something we need to pay way more attention to. You know, when, when drug studies showing treating triglycerides weren't as effective as statins, triglycerides sort of got ignored, right? When in my cardiology training, it was basically if your triglycerides are above 500, you start to worry about them because of pancreatitis, not because of cardiovascular disease. There was really no, not much talk about what it meant anymore for cardiovascular disease because drug therapy wasn't so effective at reducing heart attacks, completely ignoring the lifestyle that got you to the point of your triglycerides being high, right? So that's part of the, the teaching that we get is just so drug-focused. Um, so I think triglycerides are so important because they reflect so much about your lifestyle um, and your metabolic health. And the triglyceride to HDL ratio is one of my favorite lipid parameters that you get off of a standard blood test. You don't even have to beg your doctor for special testing, which so many are resistant to. It comes off of your standard lipid profile, triglyceride to HDL ratio. Everybody should know theirs. And you want it you know, less than one if you can. That's ideal. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. What now? You, you know, you call you, you know you go by the the low carb cardiologist, and I mean in your health coaching practice, I imagine many of the people that are seeking out your care understand that you know you're going to probably talk to them about a low carb diet. You know that that's the assumption. But in your general practice, is that the same clientele, or you just get everybody off the street and this low carb stuff? You you might tell them is is like totally crazy for them. I mean, what, what, yeah. what does that look like in your day-to-day practice outside? The yeah, health, it's a good question. It's, it's the tale of two cities, right? So in my health coaching uh, practice, people come to me knowing I'm a low carb cardiologist, but to be honest, you know, for every four people, I probably take one off of a keto diet, you know, and at least for a time to experiment because we have to find the right thing for them. So keto and low carb is a fantastic tool but it doesn't mean it's right for everybody, but I want to find out for each individual if it is. And so, but they come to me with that perception. So you're absolutely right. The people in my general cardiology practice who I see because I'm rounding in the hospital that day, or because I just get a general cardiology consult, they don't come to me knowing anything about low carb, but of course I'm going to bring it up to them in the right setting. Cause you know, probably 75% or more of the people I see are obese, 
and have uh, diabetes or prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, all these things that can improve with a low-carb diet. And when I bring it up with them, frequently they're shocked. They're like, wait a second, but, but I thought all that fat's going to kill me, and you're a cardiologist. Aren't you supposed to be telling me low-fat? And then and it turns into a much longer office visit, but th that's where I can really impact people to educate them about this, to open their eyes. And, you know, if they're not, if they're not looking for it, they frequently won't get it just like that. You know, it it's going to take some follow-up. It's going to take some hand-holding. Um, I'll frequently send them to a, a you know, different videos online that I think are really helpful or to the diet doctor website or, you know, try and give them as many resources as they can to help them help educate them about this because no one else is talking about it in the traditional medical field that they are experiencing. And, and that's a shame. So even if I can just open their eyes a little bit on that first visit, it's, it's totally worth it because I, I know the benefit they're going to get. And I mean, you're probably the same way, right? You were, you probably spent most of your career not counseling people on nutrition. And then once you started counseling them on nutrition, that really works. It just opens your eyes on like the impact you can have on people that you haven't had for the past 15 years or whatever. Right. And it, it in a way, it's a little depressing. It's like I could have helped this many more people, um, but now it's it it just kind of makes me that much more committed to spreading this message that it's a tool that should be considered for everybody and is going to be right for a large number of people. Talk to me about because you know you said that about one out of every fourth or fifth patients you see you you tend to steer out of a ketogenic diet at least for a period of time. Tell me about those people and what what is the what makes that decision for you? Yeah, so. First and foremost is what benefits are you getting, right? Um, because a lot of people come to me because their cholesterol is out of whack. Um, the, but the people that concern me the most are the people whose LDL is high, but they don't have the compensatory high HDL, low triglycerides, or they're still struggling to get their A1C down, um, that they're not seeing the progression. Or um, I've had a few people who had calcium scores before they went keto that were already abnormal. So that tells me that they're already developing plaque um, so as part of the whole picture, then maybe a diet that is going to raise their LDL, especially if they don't have the compensatory changes with their other lipid markers, is going to make me a little more concerned. Also, the people who don't notice a huge difference in being in ketosis. So, um, you know, if you're thinking more clearly and you have more energy and you're more productive and you're happier, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to fight to keep you in ketosis. But if you're one of those people who's like, meh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I got all that much benefit, then okay. Then we don't need to fight to keep you in ketosis. You know, some people hear that ketosis is, is the best thing for their health, so they want to stick with it. But if they're not getting the benefits, and that's where you really have to measure any, all, any and all of the benefits you're getting, and then balance with the potential negatives. Um, you know, I definitely say potential because we don't know that it's negative, but you have to balance that out. And so those people, maybe I will switch to a 75 gram carbohydrate diet um, and, and see how they do and follow their markers and follow how they feel. It's a lot of test and retest. You know, you, you really have to find the right approach for everybody. Of course, the other approach is then you could go carnivore with them as well. Take the next step. Um, and, you know, that's where I'm fascinated by the carnivore movement and the carnivore diet, which is something I would never even thought of a year ago. Um, but for the right person who isn't, isn't uh, getting the benefits they expected from a keto diet, it's fascinating. Um, and then the other, of course, those athletes. So athletes is a fascinating one. And, and Zach, I know you are the prime example of, of um, a low carb athlete thriving and, and actually both of you guys, you too, Sean, but some people, have a harder time making the transition. And whether it's you just need a longer period of time to adapt, 
or whether it's um, a shorter glycolytic type of activity um, or whether they're not trying to break a world record, they just want to feel better in the gym and they've noticed a dip in their performance. There are some, some times where you do need to increase the carbs a little bit. Of course, the right carbs at the right time centered around um, the sports and they may improve how they feel. And if that means they're not in ketosis anymore, that's okay for some people who don't need to be in ketosis, right? But the key is you don't say, yeah, go, go pasta load, go carb load and go back to your standard American diet. No, 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 definitely not. Yeah, you know, it's, it's especially around the sports topic, you know, that always gets interesting for me personally. And I always find myself getting looped into these conversations because inevitably, you know, someone who's completely convinced the keto diet is the best for everyone is going to look at my phase of training where I'm eating next to no carbohydrates. And then the person who's convinced that a high carb diet is necessary for endurance is going to look at the phase of my training where my volume and intensity is the highest and then my carb intake is as high as it gets during the season, which is still very low relative to what you see most endurance athletes doing. Yeah. Um, but then you get kind of these apple and orange comparisons. And I always try to preach this message that like the lifestyle context is so huge. And, you know, for me, like if I do a, a big effort and I'm going to take a real easy week after that, you know, I might go strict carnivore for that week and have a zero carb intake. But then when I'm up to training 20 hours a week, you know, I might flex my carbs up a little bit. For me, it's been, you know, I'll get, let it get up to around 20% or so during some of those bigger efforts. Um, but then I always reset it back down. So like over the course of a year, I'm probably averaging approximately 10% of my intake from carbohydrate. And that usually gets people like a little better look at that, that picture. But then if you even unpack it more, it gets a little more interesting because even when you look at my higher carb days from a percentage basis, the chances are on my higher training days, I'm running a fairly large calorie deficit in terms right. of what I'm eating versus what I'm actually burning. Yeah. And the reason for that being is I'm not really hung up on this whole like 24 hour window where, well, if I burn 5,000 calories today, I need to eat 5,000 calories a day. I'm more on like kind of a three day setup where, you know, if I burn 5,000 calories one day, it means I did something pretty massive. Um, the next day I might do very little. So just because I ate maybe only 3,500 calories that day that comprised itself of 20% carbohydrate, you know, I'm burning a lot of body fat, which would actually lower that percentage of actual fuel usage um, for like lipid versus carbohydrate. And then that next day when I'm not doing much at all and just eating, you know, very high fatty, fatty cuts of meat basically, you know, then my carbohydrate intake is, is down to zero essentially. So it's they're really like, in, unless you're willing to kind of really unpack everything, you never end up <laughs> actually discovering what anyone is, is doing. And I see that stuff all the time, especially in the sports world. Yeah. And, and from a personal example, you know, I know if I'm going to do a 50 minute high intensity interval training or an hour at the gym, or even, you know, an hour and a half moderate consistent bike ride, I'm okay doing that fasting, doing that with no carbs, no problem. But if I'm going to do a mountain bike ride with my buddies, that's going to go to two, two and a half hours. I struggle at the end of that if, if I'm fasted or no carbs. So I know for those days where they're going to push me and it's going to be over two hours, I better eat some carbs uh, that morning. And I'll, you know, I'll have some paleo granola with, you know, banana and berries and a little nut butter. So it's a combination, you know, good combination of carbs, fats, proteins, and then I'm good to go uh, for that bike ride. And that's sort of like the most carbs I have. Um, but that's me. So I had to, you know, I had to experiment to, to learn how that works. Um, and that's what I try and work with people on for those who are concerned about how they're responding 
performance wise to their diet. Yeah. Hey bro, let me go back to um, the coronary artery calcium scan, the CIMT test, because a yeah. lot of people aren't familiar with that. You know, of course I'm, I'm fully familiar with it. And I know uh, there's people that are big proponents of it. There are people out there that says, and eh, they're not that helpful, particularly the CAC. Um, let me ask you, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So explain to those what people that people might not understand what they are. And then the other question I have is, we often hear from the vegan community that the only diet that's ever been proven to reverse cardiovascular disease is this, you know, Dean Ornish, Caudal Esselstyn, you know, low fat, you know, vegan diet, lifestyle modification. Are you seeing any evidence of CIMT reversal if you do that heavily based on, on a different type of diet other than a vegan diet? And, you know, or do you think that's something we may expect to see? I mean, what's, what's been your experience with those things? All right, Oof, a lot to unpack there, a lot to talk about there. So first, this, this fallacy that vegan diet has been proven to um, reverse cardiovascular disease. You know, you look at the Ornish study. They got people to quit smoking, start exercising more, um, reduce their stress, build, build communities, and they were fed a low-fat vegetarian or vegan diet. It was, it was not a diet study. It was a lifestyle intervention study. And the regression in cardiovascular disease was done with a measurement technique that has a huge range of variability. So the data quality was poor and the intervention was not just a diet intervention. So scratch that off the list. That doesn't prove anything about the diet itself. Then you get into the Esselstyn study and he put people on statins plus a diet plus a lifestyle. So it's, it's just a, um, it's a, it's a improper use of the data to say, look, the, this proves that a vegetarian, low-fat, vegan diet reversed heart disease. It's, I don't understand how they can keep saying that when, when the studies are just so obviously confounded by all these other interactions. Okay. Well, don't tell Dr. Joel Kahn. I'm going to see him at Paleo. So. <laughs> <laughs> He'll tweet about this. Don't worry. Um, all right. Then, so, um, but do I see any reversal on low-fat diets? So with the CIM, first we have to talk about the CIMT before we talk about that. So CIMT is the, the thickness of the vessel wall in your carotid. When you compare a one-time test of the CIMT to a one-time test of a calcium score for the prognosis of if you're going to have a cardiovascular event, the CIMT is, is fairly worthless. The, the, the calcium score is far superior. But where I see the benefit of the CIMT is it shows both progression, so worsening, and regression over time. So you really, when I get it in people, it's just to get your baseline. I almost don't care what it is. I just wanna know what your baseline is. So then when we make nutritional changes moving forward, we can see if things progress or regress. And yes, I have seen the thickness decrease. Now, I don't have a patient population of 1,000 where I can publish the study and show it. You know, Hopefully, maybe a bunch of us can sort of pool our data and, and, and come up with some sort of study like that. I think it would be fascinating. It doesn't regress in everybody, um, but it, it certainly can regress. But more importantly, what I'm seeing is a lack of progression. In the vast majority of people, I'm not seeing a progression of their CIMT. And that's what I want to see. Because the question is, for those who have an LDL particle number of 2,500 or an LDL cholesterol of you know 190 or whatever the case may be, is it causing you any problems, right? Rather than just reacting to a number. And this is a test that I know I can follow in three months, in six months, in a year, with no radiation, no risk to it, and, and see if there's any evidence of progression. Um, and if there isn't, that's one piece to say, okay, you know, we can sort of rest on this a little bit, not ignore it, and continue to follow it. Calcium score, you know, you can follow probably every three to five years, something like that, um, but it usually does not show regression. 
It's not going to show an improvement. Some people say they've had an improvement. When I hear that, I always question it. Was it the technique? Was it the user? Was it a different scanner, artifact, something like that? Because it's pretty uncommon to see regression. But you want to see a lack of progression or a very tiny amount of progression. Um, so those tests are very helpful to follow over time. The CIMT, you can just follow a little more closely. What is the, uh, what is the, the, how dynamic is CIMT? Is it something that we can see changes within weeks, months? You know, what, what, what is the time interval that you recommend? For yeah, I usually that? recommend a minimum of three months, um, anywhere from three months to six months, I think is a great time frame. Um, Dave Feldman's got some really interesting data actually for his experiments. And I think he was like six weeks. I think his, I think his change was already in six weeks, but, um, you know, I want, I want someone to be consistent on their, uh, on their lifestyle before checking it, because I'm afraid if you check in six weeks and there's no change, maybe you just haven't given it enough time. Um, so I, I usually like, um, the three to six month range, but you don't see, you, sorry, Zach, but you don't see, I mean, I know with things like uh, biomarkers in the blood, we can see day-to-day -day fluctuations, even hour to hour fluctuations. We're not going to see that with CMT. You're not going to like say, Oh, I ate, I ate the wrong thing last night and threw off my CIMT score. This is more of a period of weeks to months type of thing, which I think is kind of a more reassuring value than, you know, oh my gosh, my LDL cholesterol was up high today. And then two two days later, it was lower. And so yeah. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, good point. Very good point. Wasn't Dave the one that uh, saw a noticeable difference after four weeks when he did kind of a standard American diet intervention following a keto protocol or something like that? Or am I thinking, I might be thinking of something else. Sorry, um, you cut out for a second there. Can you repeat that again? I missed yeah, that. I was, I was just following up with the, the Dave Feldman question because I think if I remember right, didn't he do like a task before and after doing a like a four-week standard American diet right. intervention? And right, I think it was like, a, like white bread and bologna diet or one of those yeah. crazy diets he did. That was, and that showed a, a quick progression, I think within like six weeks mm -hmm. um, of the CIMT. Um, and then went back to his regular diet and it came back down. Uh, it was pretty impressive data as only Dave can show. I mean, who else is, wants to go on a white bread and bologna diet for, <laughs> for six weeks? I'm glad he does it so we don't have to. No, thanks. Yeah, no kid. Um, what do you think? About, so let's talk, go back to maybe statins because there is, you know, we, we talk about the role of secondary prevention. That is people have already had a cardiovascular event and then general population is in different populations, women, elderly, how, how does that, and, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that we've seen advertising by the drug company showing, you know, it shows a, you know, whatever, 35% reduction in relative risk of an event and, and, and talk about absolute risk and yeah. the different populations and how do you manage it? And we, we, you know, we've seen, I've seen the epidemiology, epidemiologic study and I, and I, and I had the same sort of wariness about epidemiology you do because there's so many confounders in there, but we certainly do see associational data where, People with higher cholesterol have lower rates of cancer and lower rates of uh, neurodegenerative disease, and they live all, less all, less all-cause mortality. So let's let's talk a little bit about that discussion, how it pertains to uh, statin usage. Yeah, so good question. So there is, you know, epidemiology epidemiology studies um, showing that people with uh, higher cholesterol um, and when they're elderly have they live longer and they have lower risk of dementia. So one counter to that is, well, those who are sick and have cancer and are debilitated are going to naturally have lower LDL. But there was one study that, that eliminated everybody who died within the year. So they enrolled people. And at the end of the year, if you had died, you were taken out of that study. 
So you're, you're selecting out the people who were debilitated and sick and their LDL was, was low for that reason. And they still found that after age 65, a higher cholesterol can actually be associated with living longer. So it doesn't prove that it's a cause, but can be associated with it, which confuses the whole statin and LDL question. Um, you know, are statins associated with dementia? Well, people are more likely to get dementia as they age. And with all the new guidelines, they're more likely to be on statins now as they age. Um, but is there something more than that? And it seems like there probably is, but it's hard to define how much, how, what percentage of people are increased risk. But when you're talking about percentage of people, you have to talk about absolute risk. So you talk about the relative risk of statin benefits, 35%, 50%. And then you look at the, the actual studies. I mean, in, in the Jupiter study, I think it was like, less than half of a percent of an actual benefit, but was being promoted as the greatest, you know, this great achievement of showing how effective statins are. We've really lost our perspective, right? Our perspective of this should go back to the antibiotic era when antibiotics were first introduced. If you had an infection, a bad infection, or if you had tuberculosis or a bad pneumonia, you are going to die. There is no question you're going to die. Then antibiotics were invented, and all of a sudden, you had probably a 90% chance you're not going to die. Like that is a huge victory. Reducing someone's risk of a heart attack by 0.3% over five years or over two years has to be put in perspective, right? That's not, that's not the, the amazing discovery um, that, that we had in days past. And you also have to think about, now you're talking about a specific population, given a specific drug, followed for a specific amount of time. Okay, and what were the potential risks and who was excluded from that trial? And that's where the whole statin discussion uh, gets incredibly confusing. So they're, you know, the studies are funded by Big Pharma. Does that mean they're useless? No, the data is still the data, but it means you have to look at how the studies are designed. Most of the people who had side effects to statins were eliminated before the trial even began. So when they say, oh, there was only, you know, a less than 1% risk of side effects, it's because you got rid of everybody who had side effects, all right? So you have to say, what are the benefits compared to the risks and apply that to each individual? Um, and then factor in what are your risks moving forward? So if you, everybody in your family gets Alzheimer's disease at a young age and you're ApoE4 um, and your cardiovascular risk pro profile looks pretty good except for high LDL, I'm going to be very hesitant to put you on a statin because I'm gonna focus more on your Alzheimer's disease risk than your cardiovascular disease risk. And you know, a 0.2 or 0.5% reduction in your cardiovascular risk isn't worth it if there's any hint of increasing your risk of your biggest concern, which is Alzheimer's disease. So it's putting statins into that, the whole picture um, of benefit versus risk, understanding their benefit is real. The studies show it's real, but it is small. It is incredibly small on an absolute risk ratio, an absolute benefit. And depending who you're talking about, we might have to treat 217 people for five years to prevent one cardiovascular event. To me, that's not proper medicine, right? That's not treating people with the right approach. If the side effects were they made you feel better and they gave you more energy and they improved your insulin sensitivity and they helped you lose weight, all right, if those are the side effects of the drug, okay, I'm, more, I'm okay treating 217 people. But we know those aren't the side effects to statins. Statins have the exact opposite side effects of those. Um, so why would we want to treat 216 people who aren't going to benefit to get the one who will? So that's where we have to define the risk so much better, whether it's with a calcium score, whether it's with 
incorporating all these other cardiovascular risk factors, whether it's with following the CIMT. There are other ways to do it. The other caveat while I'm on statins, though, is if you are going to start a statin, there are ways to do it better and ways to do it worse. Right now, the guidelines say you give the highest tolerated dose of statin. My personal approach is to go the opposite way. I want you on the lowest dose of statin, see what kind of benefit we get from that, see what kind of side effects you get. And there's certain herbs and supplements and different things you can do to minimize those side effects and risks, and then titrate up if we need to, to get a better effect. So I would take the opposite approach of most of the guidelines when I start people on statins in the right population, they can be helpful. But there was a there was a an interesting study. I'm not sure if you you saw it. I mean, I, I know there's gazillions of cardiology studies that come out there, but there was a study I saw this year that came out looking at people that were post MI uh, 20 years out, and they saw that the people that had the lowest level of LDL cholesterol actually had higher mortality 20 years down the road, which I thought was you know pretty pretty interesting. I don't know if you saw that study or or or, or, or were aware of it. Yeah, I'd be honest, I didn't see that, but I would love to see it. Yeah, I'll try to find it here, but I can't. I just can't find it. But I, but I saw that come out, and I thought well, that's pretty interesting because you know we've got this, you know, traditional population that we think we we have to statinize, and we're showing that those ones that, you know, had had low low LDL, you know, persistently for twenty years after their their MI had a higher death rate, which yeah, I think doesn't really make sense. Flies in the face of what we know. So that 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 study's out there came out last year. I, I'd have to find it. I'll find it and send it to you. But I think it's just another, again, I, I just, it, it just seems like, and this is what I see. Whenever I see one study says this and another study says that, you know, it just, the question to me, me becomes, well, then it becomes this multifactorial. And we got, we got to figure out what the common denominator is that we're, that we're not looking at and it's right. making it black and white. And I think that's, you know, the, 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 hopefully more and more people will come to the realization because, you know, even still in 2019, I see patients all the time. They go to the doctor, they get a standard lipid panel, not even anything advanced, and it's a knee-jerk reaction. Boom, you've got, a, you've got an LDL of 150, bam, statin. Right. No questions asked. And I mean, that is the absolute norm right now. And it's just, to me, it's shocking knowing what I know, and I'm sure you're probably the same way, but do you think that we're going to see a change in the next five years, or is it going to be even worse? Now you're going on these uh, you know, PCSK9 inhibitors. You know, is, yeah. that, is, that, is that what's going to happen? Well, what's interesting is, is there's not much of a middle ground anymore, right? The cardiology community, the medical community is saying, preaching lower, 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 because we now we have expensive drugs that can drive it lower, lower, and lower, and, and maybe decrease your risk by a fraction of a percent. And then we have the other side who's, who's pointing to the evidence saying, look, higher is better in a lot of these observational studies. Why do we want to go lower? Let's just ignore it. So we have these two different factions that are getting further and further apart, and there's almost no middle ground. And I, it's a fascinating time to be involved in lipidology and, and try and figure out where the truth lies. Um, it's either confusing and maddening or fascinating, depending on how you look at it, because, because there's, so, there's so much evidence out there um, pointing in different directions, and it's hard to reconcile all that. And that's where... I mean, that's where it's hard to make a recommendation for a general population, right? And I, I hate general population recommendations for that reason, because you're not a general population. Zach's not a general population. I'm not a general population. And the people I see in, in my health co coaching program are not general populations. They're one individual, and we have to do our best for that one individual. And, and a guideline or a general consensus statement may or may not apply to them. Um, so we've got to find the right approach. And um, I don't know where the future is going to go. I think the future is going to be these 
two factions just getting further and further apart without any consensus. Um, and it's going to be confusing. Just speaking about guidelines, because, you know, and I don't know if you ever get concerned about this, because, you know, you are obviously preaching and, and, and practicing outside of what, you know, the AHA recommends and some of these other guidelines in many cases, you know, you know, given this is a general population recommendation, do you ever fear of, you know, you've got some legal retribution that, you know, if, if someone you put on a low carb diet and, and don't put on a statin somehow has a cardiac event, are you worried that they're going to say, hey, look, Dr. Shear, don't you know you weren't practicing AHA-approved uh, cardiology? What right. do you think about that? How, do, how does that impact your, your thought process? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a real thought. Um, I try and bury that in the back of my mind, knowing the benefit that you can have with people by having them follow this lifestyle um, and whether or not they're on statins. Um, they can see tremendous lifestyle benefits off of statins. So, so I put that in the back of my mind, um, trying to focus on helping the patient, but at the same time, I'm very upfront and I want to make sure everybody understands this is not what the guidelines say. This is not what standard of care is. Um, standard of care is to put you on a statin because this formula says your risk is above seven and a half percent. And, and here's why I don't think that's necessarily right. You, you know, so it, it's part of the education process. I would never say, look, this is the best treatment for you. This is proven to be beneficial. And I can you know, guarantee you, you're not going to have a heart attack in 10 years. Of course not. I would never promote anything like that. Um, so I, I really want to spend a lot of time educating people to understand why I'm recommending something that is against um, guidelines. And there are times, look, <laughs> what's funny about being in this low-carb world is I find myself the biggest statin proponent in the low-carb world, right? In the, in the regular cardiology world, I'm the biggest statin opponent. In the low-carb world, I'm the biggest statin proponent, an LDL proponent, because I do still believe there's a role. I do still believe that it has to be factored in. So maybe, maybe I'm a little bit better off legally because I'm not completely ignoring it. I'm still including it. I don't know. But regardless, the key is patient education. And I think as long as you have that rapport with your patient or your client and you've done a good job educating them what the standard of care is, what your recommendation is, and why there's a difference, as long as they understand that, then, then I think you've done the best you can. And as long as your goal is helping that person we can't spend our whole life worrying about legal ramifications. I, th I think too, like what you said earlier about how you just assess the outcomes of any, any particular protocol is probably useful in that situation as well. Cause like if you have a client coming back to you and they're reporting, Oh my, all these things are improving for me. Chances of them actually having a, a cardiac episode are, are quite low versus someone who's coming back and giving you feedback. Well, now my sleep's worse. Now I feel depressed. Now I feel this, which in that case, you're probably going to change direction anyway. Right, right, exactly. Or if someone's CIMT is getting worse and their calcium score is getting higher um, and you know other cardiovascular risk factors are increasing and I say, oh, don't worry about it. Continue doing what you're doing. Okay, that's a problem, right? You have to react to the data you're getting appropriately um, and do what's right for the patient. So I, I think as long as you're sort of you're, you're, you're communicating correctly and you're, you're monitoring correctly and you're reacting correctly, that, that's the key. Let me, I mean, this is, uh, if you have somebody that is clearly at risk for cardiovascular disease, say everything's bad, high yeah. cholesterol, high, H, you know, low HDL, high triglycerides, markers of inflammation, you know, they're, 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 they're pre-diabetic, they're diabetic. And, you know, you just say, I'm going to go this, uh, low carb route. Cause I think it's going to fix the majority of these problems, but knowing that it very well may drive their cholesterol up. 
in that acute setting because they're at risk, you know, and, and they're still inflamed and they're vascular, you know, they're assuming their vascular epithelial is still irritated and, and you may be acutely driving their cholesterol up at the same time while decreasing inflammation, while bringing the triglycerides down, while improving the HDL, while improving their, their, their glucose stability. How do you walk that tightrope? Do you stay, we're going to try to suppress your LDL while we're doing these things. And then maybe, maybe we can kind of, uh, Leave, leave leave that away down the road. Is that how that works for you? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great question and a very good point. And it's something I have done with a number of people is put them on Zedia um, in that interim period. Not not just necessarily going for a statin, but put them on Zedia in the interim period for a month, two months, three months until I see those other markers improve. I don't do that with everybody, but I have done that with a few people for exactly that reason, especially if the markers of inflammation and prediabetes and metabolic syndrome, especially if they're slow to improve, you know, some people are going to improve like that, in which case I have no concern, but if it's slow to improve and very minimal improvement, then I do want them sort of protected in that interim. And I found Zedia can be helpful for that. Um, and more people are willing to take it with fewer side effects too. Um, but with the goal being that you will get it off once those markers start to improve more. So yeah, that's definitely something I consider in, in a certain subset of people. Yeah. Just, just for those that aren't familiar with Zetia, can you, can you tell yeah. people what that is exactly? Yeah. So Zetia is a, it's a, it's a drug, um, pharmaceutical drug, um, but it works differently than statins for lowering LDL. It actually uh, inhibits this transporter in your intestine so that you're not absorbing as much cholesterol and so you're, it's not getting packaged into LDL as much. Um, so you decrease your LDL number by decreasing the absorption um, through your intestinal tract. And then I can also use supplements like red yeast rice and berberine um, in settings like that. Um, again, with the hope being, even with supplements, my hope would be it would be short-term um, for something like that. Sometimes people like them and stay on them longer and, and like the numbers the way they look. But I always want lifestyle first before supplements. Supplement only as a backup if, if you need it. What, Brett, what percentage of the time would you say, I mean, just on net, on your average patient population, do you send, do you find that you end up putting people on more drugs or, or do you take them off more drugs? Are you, when people leave the door, the average person that leaves Brett Shear's office, is he going to be on less drugs when he came in long term or, or more? What, what's, your, what's your typical? Definitely fewer drugs. Yeah. I mean, the, the polypharmacy in our society, in our medical culture is out of control. I mean, it is rare. I see somebody over 65 who's on less than five drugs. And you know, a lot of times you just don't need them. Now, if you, if you treat everything with a drug and not lifestyle, all right, you're going to need those drugs. But if you have metformin, and uh, a blood pressure medicine, and a cholesterol medicine, and a sleeping medicine, and an antidepressant, every single one of those can be removed with the proper lifestyle. Every single one of them, right? You could go from five drugs to zero drugs with the right lifestyle. But if you're not addressing the lifestyle, or you're giving you know, information that doesn't work, recommendations that don't work, then you need those drugs. So my goal is always to get you off those drugs as, as well as I can. Doesn't mean it works in everybody. Doesn't mean everybody gets down to zero drugs, but I definitely want fewer drugs, more lifestyle, more natural treatments. Let me, let me ask you a little bit more about lifestyle because uh, it's sometimes hard as a physician. I know as an orthopedic guy, when I had, you know, literally six minutes to see a patient, I mean, you just don't have time. And so how do you find that you're able to effectively communicate lifestyle follow up with the patients what sort of practices do you put in your practice personally both yeah. from the coaching standpoint and, and the general practice to, to make that a viable option for you 
Yeah, and that's a great question, a great point. And that's one of the reasons, probably the biggest reason why I started an online coaching business. So, you know, I could have the time, you know, I can have an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, whatever the case may be. That's why I developed the six-month coaching program because I want people to have this regular follow-up and this close connection because that's how you impact meaningful change. Um, it, it takes that type of dedication and that type of consistency and that type of time commitment. In a regular general medical practice, that is incredibly hard to do because you don't have the you don't have the logistical support. You don't have the time. Um, but all you can do is, you know, I do my best, you know, I try to educate them as much as I can in the time I have and give them as many resources to look into, you know, and to be honest, you know, in a cardiology practice, um, if you're seeing me for high cholesterol, most people would probably see them once a year, right? I want to see you every three months because I want to see how, how you're doing on your, on your lifestyle, right? If, if all I care about is your drugs, seeing you once a year is fine but I want to see how your lifestyle is improving. So I'm going to see you back much more frequently um, to try and make those changes. But where you, where I really see the biggest benefit um, is the people who are in the six month program um, online. I mean, that's really where people start to internalize this as who they are and lifestyle changes that are going to last and, and not just looking for the quick fix. That's, that's the most meaningful thing for me. And I mean, I've, I've gotten more satisfaction out, out of that than I have in the past, you know, 15 years as a cardiologist probably. Yeah, I, I totally can see that. Let me, do you find that some of your cardiology patients that you see, you know, somebody comes in for whatever cardiology reason and, and they're seeing you as a, as a standard patient, do you ever say, hey, look, if you want to discuss this more, I have a health coaching thing, you can, you can sign up here. Is that, is, do you, is that something you utilize or do you just get, how does that work? Uh, so, th so that's where the real legal tightrope comes in. Um, and uh, I hope for the day where I just have one practice. I hope for the day where I have one practice where it's my practice and I can talk to people for as long as I want and coach people for as long as I want. Um, unfortunately, the way it's set up right now is not quite that way, um, but hopefully it will be soon. So right now I am a little constricted. Um, I have to have sort of two separate lives um, and try not to intermingle them too much. And it's something I'm learning as I go forward. You know, this is all new to me too, to make sure I am um, within regulations that surround me, I guess, is the, the, uh, the way to try and dodge that question. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a follow with that too. Um, Cause you know, I, mean, I think a lot of times people will, they'll think of that, they'll go to their, their general doctor and it'll be like a, a 10 minute visit and they feel like they're just getting a few talking points and walking out. And then, you know, people get mad at doctors and it's like, I, it's, it's deeper than that. I think these doctors, legitimately do want to help people and they're kind of stuck in a system that is making it kind of a churn and burn setup. Yeah. Uh, so like you're kind of a good example of someone who's kind of at least partly broken away from that. So you could kind of probably pursue what you actually went to school for mm -hmm. and doing it in a meaningful way. Do you see a lot of other people kind of in your profession taking advantage of uh, the access to people we have now through like social media and websites and YouTube channels and podcasts and these sort of things and yeah. then virtual appointments even? I wouldn't say a lot. Um, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but I definitely see this groundswell starting um, that people are starting to experiment with this. And, you know, there are a lot of, depending on what kind of practice you are, there are a lot of rules and regulations about what you can and cannot do. There's, you know, medical legal concerns about what you can and cannot do. So, um, I think that's preventing a lot of people um, from going this route. But there's definitely more of a groundswell now than I've ever seen before. Um, 
and the, you know, it's with the ultimate goal of just trying to help more people and help them in a more meaningful way. And I, and, you know, that's only a good thing. Yeah. I think the, 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 the problem I see here is, you know, you can, you can do a concierge type practice where you limit your practice, you allow yourself lots of time, but you know, you really, to make a living, you've got to really just treat rich people basically. I mean, that's, that's how that works. I mean, you charge them a bunch of money, you get to spend as much time as you want with them and they feel good. But at the same time, there's such a huge percentage of people out there that can't afford that, you know, patients that can't afford that. Right. So then you go the health coaching route and you maybe charge them something reasonable and you can see enough, you know, enough people. Um, I, I just, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it, it, hopefully we can change the system. You know, there's enough people right. out there and I think the patients want that because they want the time. And, I, and as a physician, you want to spend the time with the people and make a meaningful difference in their life, but you can't. And right. I think that's the frustrating part. So then you, you know, maybe you become health coaches or, or you decide like, I'm just going to, like we had Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on here and she's, she's got a concierge practice and she takes care of the elite, you know, the elite performers and that, and that's fine. And she serves that population. But then at the same time, what do you tell the, 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 the you know, the person that's barely making it in a living and, you know, they just got to suck it up and be poor and get, get the five minute fast food service medicine. I mean, it's, 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 right. you know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of sad. It is. It is. I mean, our healthcare system is, is, is definitely not set up for success in, in that realm. And that's, and that's part of the role that podcasts like this play and websites like Diet Doctor and people who are writing books and um, people making YouTube videos. You know, that's a great way to reach the masses. It's free, it's easy, um, and it's good information that can reach the masses. So that's certainly one starting point. But then the question is, how do you translate that into a medical practice where you can treat a wide spectrum of people still make a living and still really meaningfully impact them. And, and I don't know the answer. I don't know what the secret sauce is there, but I would sure like to find out. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny because I, you know, we see people like when I was doing, you know, lots of joint replacements, making good living, no one begrudged me uh, an income for, for doing surgery on people. But, but if you go out there and say, Hey, let's do lifestyle. Then all of a sudden, if you want to make a living doing that, people are like, Oh, you're just a shill. You're just, you know, you're just trying to get money. And I'm just like, this is, you, know, <laughs> you, still have a, you still have a house, you know, mortgage to pay and kids to feed and electric right. bills to pay. And it's, it's, it's maddening to me sometimes to think that, you know, you, 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 you know, no one cares if you're, you're doing surgery or doing procedures and putting people on drugs and making a, making a good salary. Right. And maybe not make it as much of a difference. And now when you're actually really, truly, you know, changing people's lives all of a sudden if you try to make a living doing that you're all of a sudden a bad guy I mean, isn't that interesting that's a fascinating disconnect <laughs> uh. well brett um we thank you so much for coming this has been an outstanding you know you know because i i always get questions about the, the cardiovascular risks of going on a low-fat diet or a carnivore diet or a keto diet and i you know i try to do the best i can knowing what i do, do but i mean it's nice to get a cardiologist's perspective that's really got a little more nuance to this stuff and, and, I, and I really appreciate you coming on and tell us where people can find you as if they want to be, if they, if they want to be part of your practice or your social media, I know you're working with diet doctor, you guys got your own podcast. Tell us a little bit about the, that sort of stuff. And then Zach, if you got anything else we can, we can ask. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoy talking to you guys and, and love the work you're doing. Um, best place to find me is lowcarbcardiologist.com. Uh, I've got a blog. I've got links to the diet doctor podcast there. Um, you can find about the lipids course and the health coaching and the program and all that's on there. So that's really the best place to start. Um, and then on social media, I'm on Twitter at be sure MD. Um, and that's probably, that's probably it. Yeah. 
So thank awesome. you. Appreciate yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Brett. We'll be sure to link that stuff to the show notes so our listeners can uh, find you if they want to go look at more of your stuff. And folks, definitely do that. Definitely check out his Twitter page. He just puts out a lot of good content, links to stuff. And um, yeah, well, thanks for coming on. All right. oh, oh, Brett, I've, so I'm, I'm sort of developing this carnivore community thing. I'm trying to, and I'm trying to figure out, trying to help folks out. I assume as a physician, you'd be willing to see patients that were on a carnivore diet. And, you know, oh, of course. Okay, so I'll put you in the list there as, as, as carnivore friendly, as a, as a potentially carnivore friendly doctor. Um, so we got, we got Nadir Ali coming on, another cardiologist. Anything we should ask him that you don't think we covered? You know, I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to. Nadir's great. So one of the great things about Nadir is he, you know, I guess we're all in this, in this setting, we're all sort of outside the box thinker, but he's a very creative outside the box thinker. So he's got this whole, um, theory of beta beta oxidation and lipids and um he's really sort of trying to develop this whole other thought process about why ldl goes up in low carb and um i love i love the way his brain works so i think you're i think you're going to enjoy talking to him and he's really just a, a very nice humble and, and uh, gracious guy so you're going to enjoy that interview for sure yeah i got to meet him, i got to meet him again briefly that couple weekends ago in boulder in, in denver so it'll be fun to actually spend some time chatting well thank you so much brett uh you know this will probably zach will probably we'll get this out in probably about two weeks or so i think i don't know where we're at as I think, far yeah, as i think we're at two three weeks per okay cool recording date at this point so we'll soon let, enough i guess we'll, we'll let you know and and you know look forward look forward to more stuff coming out brett this is a fun exciting time you know uh you know, we're either all going to crash and burn or we're going to do something big, I think. <laughs> right? Let's hope it's the latter. I hope so, too. All right. Thank you all so right. much. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Zach. See you Take guys. Take care. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.